Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as Ontario reaches a new vaccine milestone, it prepares to move into the next stage of reopening. Are we going to see a rise of infections because of that? Well, we'll talk about it. A memorial for the family killed in London will be held, and one of those in attendance will be federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. He joins us to talk about that and, of course, the concerns about what's happening in Kamloops these days. And in the wake of the discovery of those bodies in Kamloops, uh, Hamilton School is actually renaming one of their properties, one of their elementary schools. Cam Galindo is the vice chair of the board. He's going to join us to explain. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The numbers are uh, starting to come in right now about what's happening here in Ontario, and they're pretty encouraging, of course. And it looks like Ontario is set to enter the uh, responding plan for phase one now of uh, what the Premier outlined just a little while ago, which means easing some of the restrictions. Is it the right time, and uh, should we be concerned about some of the other factors that are involved in this? I want to bring uh, Dr. Chris Bach into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Bach, of course, is a professor and a research chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics and a specialist in mathematical and computer modeling of infectious disease outbreaks at the University of Waterloo. Uh, Chris, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Listen, as you look at the numbers and crunch the numbers here, uh, since we talked last, I guess, a couple of weeks ago now, uh, are you comfortable with what seems to be happening here? Are you comfortable with it? It's, uh, maybe it's time to loosen things up a little bit? You know, I, I am. Um, you know, the, the big difference between reopening now and, and after the previous waves is that whenever we reopened after the previous waves, inevitably uh, the virus eventually came back. Uh, but this time we're reopening um, in the presence of a, of, of robust and, and climbing vaccine coverage. And, that, and, of course, the vaccine provides immunity. So it means that, uh, the pen, you know, that we won't have a fourth wave uh, just on account of reopening. It's not going to come back and hit us again like it did previously. So that buffer then is, is really it's the vaccine program that really has put us in the situation that we're in now. Exactly. And the seasonal factors help, too. And with the warming temperatures, people will just uh, spend more time outdoors, uh, not because uh, they have to because of regulations, but because you can. And, of course, the risk of outdoor transmission, it's not zero, but it is lower. And and I think that's helping as well. Um, But the vaccine is is the real game changer here. And um, and in the longer term, that's, you know, what's going to uh, give this reopening some kind of uh, longevity and and and. uh, and, you know, I, I, as we may have discussed previously on the show, I, I think possibly even we won't shut down again in the future. That's, <laughs> that's what I hope what happens. I, I think the vaccine would make that possible. There are still some pockets. As a matter of fact, it was reported late last week, KW was one of them, actually. Uh, and we just found out this morning on our newscast here that Hamilton is now considered still a hot spot, even though our numbers are going down uh, relative to what's going on in the rest of the province right now, Toronto and Hamilton and, and to a certain extent even KW. Uh, is that giving these variants or the, the one variant that everybody seems to be concerned about, is that giving them a leg to stand on here? Well, I think uh, I think the thing to remember about you know the herd immunity is, is that when we, you know, if we reach herd immunity, it doesn't mean zero cases. Uh, we'll still have, you know, outbreaks and a few hot spots here and there, uh, but overall the cases will be much lower than they are now. And um, so, you know, one thing that will happen, uh, uh, you know, going forward is, is, you know, there will be some outbreaks associated with, with these newer variants, like the, the double mutants we've heard about. Uh, and I think there will also be some hot spots associated with with uh, children because, of course, under 12s can't get the vaccine yet and probably won't be able to until the fall. So, you know, probably what we'll see is, I imagine the summer we'll see some outbreaks in, in summer camps um, 
uh, and in, in the fall, if there's a hybrid model, there might be some class outbreaks. Uh, so, uh, you know, of, of course, reaching herd immunity doesn't mean we can, it doesn't mean that, you know, there won't be any outbreaks. Uh, it just means that there'll be fewer and far between, and I suspect they'll be more focused on younger age groups going forward. Uh, but with enough people vaccinated, especially in the really vulnerable age categories, uh, as long as we can keep that vaccine coverage, uh, you know, trending upward, then it means, you know, we, we won't lock down again, certainly not at the provincial level. Um, although, you know, they might decide to lock down locally. I, I don't know. But I, I think provincial lockdown is, is off the table as, as long as we can get the vaccine coverage up um, across the board in all the health units. Are you comfortable with the vaccine program and the rollout as it's happening in Ontario? I know they just announced last week they were ramping it up again, but there are still some critics that are saying, look, at you know, Peel's still a hot spot. So, well, that's where you should be blitzing. You should be doing more of it there and just make it available to everybody in that area as opposed to going by demographic, which uh, some people think is, is leaving too many potential people that could actually still contract the virus uh, not be able to get that second shot. Yeah, it's a, it's a real moving target. It's... Uh... You know, the problem with going after, I think, going after hotspots, going after areas that, that you know will have higher activity over the next, you know, months is, is a good idea. Reacting to, to a current outbreak, um, that's helpful, but not as helpful as kind of being proactive about it because it takes a few weeks for immunity to build from the vaccine. So, you know, you, you can vaccinate people, but, but they're still susceptible in, in the week or two after that. So it kind of depends on, on whether this is more like a short-lived outbreak or... or kind of a more protracted uh, uh, epidemic in the hotspot. Um, and, you know, of course, you know, the sooner we can get people vaccinated, the better. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm relatively, uh, I'm, I'm certainly happy that we're, you know, we're getting the vaccine coverage up um, pretty high. I think we're doing better than many U.S. states. And, you know, that's, mm -hmm. um, that's great that we're voluntarily doing it and we don't have to, uh, you know, get Canadians, give them beer or... or <laughs> Water <laughs> to, to get vaccinated. I hope we can get it, you know, you know, up to you know, ninety percent or above, uh, as high as possible. Um, so there's, there's lots of things to be happy about. But of course, you know, you can always tweak the vaccine program. Um, and but you know, sometimes it's hard to. We don't always have the right information to make these decisions. And um, so, you know, given limited information, you know, I, I you know, I, I think we're we're doing pretty well. And and it's not always clear what, what the best alternative is because there are pros and cons to going for demographic versus going for hotspots, as, as public health, uh, you know, as some people have recommended. Chris, how do you make that determination? Now, you know, you're, you're a numbers guy, and, and you can see all these numbers, and just, a lot of us, we just kind of glaze over. It seems like, I don't know what this all means. When you get a new set of data, uh, such as we tend to get almost every day now about what's going on here, what's the first thing you look for to say, okay, are we doing all right here, or, or do we have some concerns? Is it, is, it, is it just the number of new cases? Is there something else you look for that gives a, a, a much more clear picture? So uh, there's a couple of crucial things. It's, it's the number of new cases, but it's also the trend in cases. Is it going up or is it going down? And then you also have to think about the history of, of the pandemic in that population. Has it seen previous waves? Um, you know, in these models, there's quite a, a lot that goes into it. Even population density goes into it because population density can determine whether or not a place is a hotspot. Uh, there's a strong correlation. Uh, so... You know, the way we actually work in practice is that uh, we, you know, we create a model with, with various data inputs since there are many factors that can in influence numbers. And then we try to project going forward, we compare different scenarios, for example, um, 
you know, subject to the uncertainties in the data, is it better to go for hot spots or just keep on giving a second dose to, to uh, vulnerable demographics, for example? Uh, and then we come up with an answer. Now we always have to update our model as 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 as, as the outbreak as the pandemic proceeds, and there are more questions than you know we have time to address or tackle. Um, uh, but you know, generally speaking, the, the crucial things we look for are, you know, what are the demographics? You know, population density is important. Uh, what is the vaccine coverage? Uh, and not just current cases, but what's the trend in cases? Is it going up or down? Um, and then we also look at kind of kind of rules of thumb on a larger scale of provincial scale. We look at rules of thumb. For example, we know that things that happen in the States and Europe, we often experience them here in Canada, uh, you know, two months later or so. And, you know, that's been a very good predictor of, of what we're going to experience, right? So mm-hmm. I remember saying back in February, well, we're going to see a third wave. You know, UK saw three wave because of the variant. Reopening the presence of the variant it's, 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 it's probably going to cause a third wave. So we also look at those kind of, kind of proxies or kind of comparator countries that, that kind of seem to go through similar steps a couple months before we do. What about the severity of it? Uh, because I know, in talking to some of your colleagues about this, uh, they, they've talked to us not just about number of new cases, but how severe they are. In other words, hospitalizations, uh, ICU beds, things of this nature. No, those numbers seem to be steadily going down, at least they have over the last couple of weeks anyway. I, I would imagine that's uh, sending a positive vibe. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, the vaccine seems to be uh, out pacing the higher severity of many of these new variants, which, which is great. So, you know, the, these variants might be, you know, say, twice as severe, 50% more severe on average. But the vaccine uh, is so effective at preventing the most severe outcomes that it's outweighing that. And that's a common feature of many vaccine programs. So if you have a vaccine that's 50% effective against transmission, it's probably going to be more effective um, against showing symptoms and even more effective against hospitalization and even more effective than that against ICU and ICUs and death. So, so you know, e- even though we can't prevent all the cases, and we'll probably have COVID cases in the fall winter, uh, with enough of a role with people vaccinated, we're not going to see a huge surge in ICUs and deaths. Uh, and what we're seeing now that 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 sudden drop off in ICU admissions is also reflecting the fact that you know, the vaccines are really optimized for for preventing those severe outcomes, and they do it very well, even for these variants. Okay, but I've, I, here's my concern, and, and maybe you can assuage my fears here, but uh, when I'm looking at some of the data that we're getting here, let's talk about this variant, uh, as, as we say, that came from India uh, initially anyway, and we saw the devastation that it, it, it caused in that country for a long, long time. We seem to be handling it better, but we're told time and time again that uh, that we need that second shot uh, to be not bulletproof, but I mean it, to really be protected against this variant, which they say, of course, is uh, spreads much faster and could be a little more severe than the ones we've been putting up with. So that that paints a rather ominous picture to begin with, uh, and it's great. I, I agree with you totally that the vaccine program seems to be rolling out nicely, but only about seven percent of the Canadian population have received the second shot uh, and are fully vaccinated for that. Does that make us vulnerable to this variant? You know, I, I do share your concern. Um, I have my biggest concern going forward is vaccine hesitancy and yeah. um, and that second shot. Uh, um, you know, people not getting their second shot. They're not really vaccine hesitant, are they? <laughs> but but, but I, I think the um, the issue is with the second dose is we're, we're told four months ahead, maybe two months to get to pharmacy. Now, as far as this particular variant from India goes, um, you know, the, like I said, COVID has, is fairly seasonal. 
and um, especially in Canada so far. So the summer buys us a little bit of time to get more people having their second dose. So that's one thing working in our favor uh, that that um, you know that and you didn't have, for example. Um, the second thing, which is going to play out probably more over the you know six month time scale, is modifying the vaccines for the new variant. So they've mm. uh, you know fi- uh, so for example, the Pfizer vaccine has already they already have a, a, a modification. To include some new variants that they're that they're developing, um, so but but yeah, in, in short, you know, I, I am concerned that if you know if we, as long as the vaccine, everything I'm saying is subject to that caveat that vaccine coverage is high and we get our second dose. If that doesn't happen, then we are in a vulnerable situation. So it is really important for people to get their second doses as soon as they can, um, and we really want to get vaccine coverage up above seventy percent. We can't stop there; it needs to be higher than that. Yeah, that's a, a concern I know south of the border, and it's, we have to make sure our numbers are climbing up as well. And that's that's the thing that I guess concerns an awful lot of us. And and, and then maybe the message here is that look, look, I know the numbers are looking pretty good right now, but we're not out of the woods yet. This thing is still going to be around. So, and that that's that's interesting. What you were just mentioning about you know, the vaccines for the variants now too, because we always were concerned about whether or not the vaccine, if you've only had the one shot anyway, uh, was going to be any good at all against this variant. And uh, well, the one stat I saw, which is rather troubling, I, my first shot was Pfizer uh, and they said you know when I got it well, you're no 80 to 90 percent coverage even the first shot and that's great but now apparently with this virus I guess uh, the numbers go down to about 30 percent uh, so you know I'm, I've still got another box of masks here beside me and I'm going to be doing the social distancing and everything because uh, it's we're not there yet are we to just say okay fine we, we've we beat this thing that's right yeah we can't totally relax I think uh, you know reopening uh, you know retail businesses in, in the current situation is, is a good call but uh, we have to keep in place those uh, you know less economically uh, damaging measures like masks that's a relatively mm-hmm. you know cheap intervention that we should keep doing indoors um, and um, and of course you know we haven't really seen a lot of cases of the b1617 variant yet right so I mean it will come uh, and um, and, 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 you know, the, the best way to prevent it from being a problem is, is, is you, know, main, you know, maintaining uh, things like masks and distancing uh, when you're indoors, uh, even as we reopen uh, and allow larger gatherings. And also, uh, you know, again, vaccines, 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 uh, you know, we have to get the vaccine coverage up. And that's going to help significantly. The other thing to keep in mind is that that effectiveness of 30 percent um, against the variant that that's absolutely correct, um, but uh, but chances are uh, it has a higher cross protection against more serious outcomes caused by the variant, like mm-hmm. IVs and deaths. And that's again again because of that the, the way that vaccines work, they you know they prevent uh, uh, you know they they prevent serious outcomes more effectively. So we probably don't have much data on that, and people in public health may not um, you know prefer to you know if there's not data, they won't speculate on it, but. But just based on what I've seen with the past vaccines and how vaccines work, you know, that's that's my guess as, as to what we'll see in the data coming moving forward. But we won't know that for a little while longer. Well, and uh, when we get that data, of course, you, you know, expect our phone call uh, to try to make some sense out of it for us. Chris, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for spending some time with us again today. Okay, thanks, Bill. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Dr. Chris Bach, of course, from uh, University of Waterloo. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. City of London, of course, in well, in mourning for all intents and purposes. I heard earlier, of course, uh, from our team, of course, at uh, CFPL uh, 980 News and uh, the this coverage that's going on there and, of course, the reaction from Mayor Ed Holder and so many others that are uh, reacting to uh, the horrific news about what happened. The arrest that has been made, of course, the ongoing investigation. Uh, RCMP have offered their support to uh, London police who are continuing with that investigation. And uh, we'll bring you any updates on that as they, uh, they occur. But uh, it's uh, fascinating and, and I think heartening to at least see the way the community has rallied behind uh, not just this family, but of course the Muslim community uh, who are, are, you know, have been a part of the, the scene in London, of course, for many, many years. And uh, it's, it's, well, just heart-wrenching to hear the stories and, and, and to know as we're starting to learn more about that family that were victimized uh, by this. There will be a memorial service uh, at the mosque tonight uh, in London, of course, uh, right on Oxford Street by Cherry Hill, which coincidentally is about a block and a half away from uh, where the uh, individual who's charged here was apprehended. Uh, one of those attending, with Prime Minister will certainly attend tonight, but also uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, uh, we're told, is going to uh, uh, be attending the meeting and that uh, the, uh, the memorial service at the mosque, which will be happening uh, 7.30 or 7 o'clock, I guess it is now, just getting the information from our newsroom here, about 7 o'clock tonight at that mosque. And obviously the mosque cannot accommodate everybody, but uh, for those who know the area there, are, of course, in Cherry Hill, uh, there's a, a huge parking lot right beside that, and I'm sure there's going to be a large outdoor audience uh, that will just want to be there uh, f- to show their support as well. Uh, to that end, though, uh, uh, the, the number of people in Parliament, of course, that's limited by social distancing and everything else, uh, but there were some statements made earlier uh, in the, the, the legislature about what went on there, and uh, we're pleased to welcome uh, Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh to the program to talk about that. Mr. Singh, welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to have you back with us. I wish it was uh, under better circumstances. Thank you. It's, it's an honor to be back, and, and yes, uh, I wish it was under better circumstances as well. You uh, you spoke in in the house about an hour or so ago, and uh, and became very emotional, uh, understandably so. Maybe you can share your thoughts with our listeners. Yeah, today was a day where obviously we are all mourning this horrific, horrible, just heinous act, and it is something unimaginable that a family could go for a, an evening stroll and end up not making it home. So. We are grieving that, but there's also anger and frustration. And in my speech, I, I just felt the anger that, that how much more will it take? How many more lives will it take? Uh, Muslims were killed while peacefully praying at a mosque in Quebec. There was a Muslim man that was knifed and killed in Toronto, and now an entire family mauled down. All of these incidents were hate crimes. They were all very clearly linked to people who were radicalized by extreme right-wing ideology they were they were they were incited into hateful acts of killing and taking lives because of the hatred of the way someone looks the way someone prays or the what someone believes and and people are just saying what is it going to take for somebody to change we can't just have expressions of condolences without something changing and really acknowledging that the real and urgent threat to canadian security in the past number of years has been hate has been extreme right-wing or uh, white supremacist hate that has left people dead. And we've got to do something different. We've got to fight that now. And there's also been politicians, and I don't blame them entirely, but they certainly share some of the blame, who have used Islamophobia to divide people and to gain votes. We've seen that not too long ago. Conservatives with a number of bills that they brought forward, the Barbaric Act, the ban on the niqab, 
We've seen the block with uh, the Bloc Québécois with ads that really targeted Muslim community. There can never be any other party that ever uses Islamophobia to gain votes, given the toll that it takes, that the hate means people die. It's it's our own nightmare that we're we're living here, and and you're right. It only seems to flare up and and become a, a big front burner issue for us when a tragedy like this occurs. I mean, you know, we looked south of the border to to our friends and relatives down in the states uh, with the gun violence, and and you know, you've seen the mantra on social media, of course. You know, it says I, we need more than thoughts and prayers. Well, it's the same thing with us. Uh, I mean, we need more than thoughts and prayers. I mean, it's 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 wonderful to see the outpouring of support and emotion for the family and for the Muslim community. But the the, the other question, and I think you you touched on it in your speech in in the comments, is when are we going to do something about it? When are we going to simply you know do something about it instead of waiting for it to happen again? That's exactly it. And while people absolutely should should mourn and take the time to reflect on what this loss has meant, and and that is very important that that healing and, and mourning process is important for leaders for politicians who can actually take action it isn't good enough and and that's why uh, i i made my speech today about some of the action that we can take tackling online hate making sure we never use ever uh, allow the use of, of rhetoric that divides people purposely to incite hatred against communities based on who they are we need to make sure that the resources that we have in terms of our security resources are used towards dismantling groups that are promoting hate. They are the real threats to Canadians, and they should be the ones that are targeted. So uh, I, I think today should be a day for, for mourning and for grief, but also a call to action, that today we decide to do something different, that no more lives should be lost to hatred, and we take a bold stance with concrete action to combat it. It's not a simple solution, though, is it? I, I, I'm, you, you can't just say, okay, we're going to pass a law that says this is illegal. We, that's already there. We know that. Uh, but you can take away some of the tools that the, 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 the people that perpetrate this and the, and the haters that, that feed into this. Uh, we can take away some of those tools. And, and I know I'm not going to try to get into the politics too, uh, too deeply into this, but even the, the, the bill that was before you today, or earlier this week, of course, Mr. Singh, about uh, uh, controlling the Internet and the messaging on the Internet. And I know there's a lot of pushback from some of the other members of parliament about this but it's it's and it's perfect certainly not perfect but it's flawed and there's a lot of flaws that, that you've talked about and there's some modifications that need to be made about it but it's a first step isn't it about trying to suggest that look at we can't just let people say what they want do what they want because this is what the result is well there's no question that we need to have uh, a very healthy limitations on certain type of speech we can't allow people to incite hatred it can't be allowed we can't allow misinformation that is designed to inspire hate against people. We've seen it with, uh, with Asians. The, the rash yep. of anti-Asian hate is real, and we've seen people be assaulted, elderly Chinese women being assaulted. I have constituents in Burnaby, BC, where we have a large population of people from Chinese, of Chinese descent, where uh, one of my constituents, this is a month ago, told her mom not to go for her evening walk because of the rise of of violence against particularly elderly Asian women were being assaulted. It's a real thing. So uh, when, when misinformation and hateful rhetoric is spread online that, that incites people to have hatred towards communities or people based on the way they look or where they come from, that is dangerous, that is hurtful, and that can't be allowed to happen. Um, with the bill, the main point of that bill is to take on web giants that shouldn't be allowed to exploit, exploit uh, artists and musicians. But we really need to make sure 
we are doing everything to combat online hate. And that is absolutely something that shouldn't be left to the to the multi-billion dollar corporations, the multi-million dollar corporations. It should be left to people in government who decide uh, with the help of experts how we can not allow hateful rhetoric and messages that will incite hatred to uh, proliferate on social media. We can't allow that to happen. Those messages have to be taken down and those sites that promote hate have to be taken down. And, and that's an important part of the work we do to move beyond just the thoughts and prayers to something concrete. And, and I know there's always pushback, and you've heard this, I'm sure. You know, well, we don't want a nanny state. Well, okay, I get that as an argument. I don't know how valid it is. But on the other hand, you know, when when people like Mr. Zuckerberg, who who's obviously in charge of one of these major platforms, simply says, "I'm just going to post it and leave it up to the reader to decide whether or not it's true or false or whether it's hateful," I, I, I'm sorry, that's we can't do it that way. There's got to be some set of parameters, does there not, for for these sorts of things? Absolutely. And that's what we're calling for. There's absolutely no way we can allow hateful messages. If there's a message out there that, that says, oh, um, this particular community is going to uh, do something harmful to your children. Well, and that message gets spread around. People will start to hate that community, whatever that community is. Insert any group there. If that type of message starts being spread and there's videos shared about it, the, the real impact of that is people die. And we've seen that. In fact, we've got clear evidence that in Quebec, the killing, the shooting, the massacre that happened at the mosque in Quebec and the killing of the men in Toronto, those two killings, or in the Quebec case, there was a number of people that were shot dead, uh, that the shooters and the killers in both those cases were found to have been radicalized by websites that promoted hate. It was a part of the case, a part of the prosecution is that these folks were radicalized by hate and it is a real threat. So we cannot let messages that like that be left to regulation by companies like Facebook who don't really care. It's not their interest. They just want to make money. Their interest isn't in protecting people. Their interest is in the bottom line. And that's why people elected to serve by Canadians should put in place strict regulations around what hateful messages, uh, what happens to those. Those hateful messages need to be removed. With uh, federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, uh I want to pivot, if I could, for just a minute. I mean, the, the news of this terrible tragedy in London, of course, hit us on, on Sunday evening. While you and, and the rest of Canadians, I think all of us, were trying to deal with the, the news that we just received a few days ago about the, uh, the revelation in Kamloops, and it brings, again, the debate about residential schools and their place in our history and those who uh, were responsible for these sorts of things. Uh, so many questions to be asked in situations like that, very few answers at this stage, because we know that these schools existed all over the country, not just in Kamloops, but see uh what what is the government's role at this stage uh, it, it, to to uncover this and to, and to find some justice and reconciliation uh, as i mentioned in a commentary the other day uh, there can be no reconciliation without first acceptance of, of what happened and and that that's not forthcoming at least it doesn't seem to be anyway well yeah there's a number of steps that need to happen and absolutely acknowledging the harm suffered is a big one uh, but there's some things we've got to acknowledge that the harm suffered is not kind of a historic thing in the past. It's an ongoing, unbroken legacy of harm against Indigenous people. The genocide didn't stop. What happened to Indigenous children in residential schools, that discrimination and that mistreatment, continues in Indigenous child welfare to today. And right now, what we've called for in a motion that passed yesterday was that, on one hand, Justin Trudeau took a stand saying that he is... Uh, sad about what happened in Kamloops and expressed condolences. But in the other breath, he is currently fighting Indigenous children in court 
despite the fact that the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal found that these kids, these Indigenous children, were willfully and recklessly discriminated by against by the Canadian government, and that despite that, and the, despite the ruling and multiple orders, the Canadian government, via Justin Trudeau, is currently fighting that case, appealing that case in court. And we said, drop the court case, stop fighting these kids. It's the same legacy. If you, on one hand, say that the finding of the discovery of 215 children in an unmarked grave in Kamloops is horrible, then why would you fight Indigenous kids today who were willfully discriminated by the Canadian government? So we called for that concrete action. We called for stopping the legal battle against Indigenous survivors of residential schools who are also being challenged in court. Uh, instead of being fought in court, we should see some uh, work towards walking the path of reconciliation and actually healing the injuries through justice, not fighting them in court through legal battles. And we finally said the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission really lay out a real path, path forward to healing and reconciliation for people in light of the residential schools. That's, that's the commission's work. That's what they did. They looked at residential schools and laid out a number of really key recommendations. Those have to be put in place. They basically chart a path forward for justice, and so far this government has only done a fraction of them. Well, and that was part of the frustration. I mean, you, you know, just after we heard about this, of course, the Prime Minister made the announcement about this new policy and this new direction going forward. Uh, and I'm sure that Murray Sinclair listened to that and said, that sounds familiar. Isn't that what I recommended six years ago? <laughs> it Almost it word for exactly word. Actually, it is actually word for word uh, 2015, so six years ago, in uh, Justice Sinclair, in, in the work that was done in the commission, it actually states very clearly that Indigenous communities should be supported if they choose, and it should be very much their choice, if they choose to investigate other burial sites in churches or in residential schools that the community might have belief there could be uh, other bodies buried, they should be supported. And that was one of the calls to action, made a lot of sense, was just basic human rights and dignity and respect. And it, six years later, it took a horrible discovery for the government to finally do something about it. But it shouldn't be so cynical. It shouldn't be that this discovery forces the government to act. They should have acted six years ago. They should have put in place this this call to action, which is very quick. They did it within within days of the discovery because it's something very easy to do. And so the fact that the government waited so long, the fact that the Liberals delay, we always say that justice delayed is justice denied. And, and that's what the Liberal government's doing so far. I, the other day on the program, I read the United Nations... Uh, Human Rights Commission definition of genocide, uh, and it's it's there's about a five point uh, I guess definition that's involved. I know you've seen it. Uh, are you comfortable using that word to describe what happened in Kamloops and in other residential schools? Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about it that that the the Canadian government's policies towards Indigenous people on on various counts of the United Nations supported definition of genocide are satisfied on a number of grounds. Um, there are grounds of just directly killing Indigenous people based on those grounds. When you deny the necessities of life, uh, stripping people of their culture, language, identity, and making it hard for, for the, that community to continue to grow, uh, which is what happened when, they, when you strip communities of their children, uh, on various grounds, that, that definition certainly applies. And other people, other experts have said so. And really just we know that intuitively what happened, the goal, it was not really hidden, the goal of residential schools and all the policies towards Indigenous people was to kill them, was to eradicate them. It was the goal. And it's painful to, to hear that being said because people 
have a notion of Canada. That's not the Canada we believe we are. Reality, it, it is. But the positive side is we don't have to continue walking that same path. We can change direction and say, that was the path. That was a horrible path. Let's change it. And I take a lot of inspiration from what Germany did. Germany did a lot of work. And right now, in uh, part of the culture of Germany, when you are going through school, even new Germans, people who come to Germany as immigrants, they all take on this identity that we are part of a country that was responsible for one of the most horrific things in recent history, the Holocaust. And we continue to have to work to rectify that historic injustice. Even, even new Germans take on that role of saying we're going to be better now because of that horrible thing in the past. I think as a part of our Canadian identity, we say, yeah, we did some really horrible things. And a part of our identity is that's why we are such fierce defenders of human rights and why we protect the rights of Indigenous people, because we want to make amends for what happened in the past and what well, continues to happen. And governments have done that. I mean, you know, the, the, the past governments, obviously, the, the Prime Minister's done this. Prime Minister Stephen Harper did this, too, offering official apologies for bad behavior by past governments. Uh, you know, and, and whether it was internment of, of Asians in the West Coast or Italians in, in, in the eastern part of the country during the World War II, that's that. And I understand that, you know, the word genocide maybe make feel a lot of people uncomfortable. But don't we have to make people feel uncomfortable for them to do something about it? That's a thing. You know, the only time you really grow is when you're uncomfortable, when you, when the discomfort should drive us to do things differently. If we're comfortable, we kind of walk down the same way. We keep on doing things that we've always done. When we're uncomfortable, we try to change things. And, and it's okay to be uncomfortable because that's how we grow. That's how we improve. It is tough to, to come to grips with the reality of what, what goes on in Canada. Uh, even when it comes to this horrific thing in London, uh, this horrific mauling of these, of, of this family, this is a part of, of the reality of Canada as well. We, we are in a place that we, we have racism. As much as Canadians are polite and lovely people, racism still exists in Canada and people are afraid to walk out in their communities because they might be attacked for how they look. That is a reality. We can accept those realities and then work to improve them. And, and a part of the growth that we all need to do is to not shy away from the things that exist in our society, the realities, the the ongoing injustice of Indigenous people, the reality of, of racism and fear for racialized people and Muslims and Jews. Uh, many people continue to face so much uh, threat of violence, and we have to acknowledge that, that is a reality and then do something about it. Federal leader Jagmeet Singh. Mr. Singh, it's a very busy day. I appreciate you taking some time for us today. Uh, stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thank you, sir. Take care. Take care. That's a federal leader, of course, Jagmeet Singh, who, as we mentioned, is along uh, with the prime minister on his way to uh, London today for the uh, memorial service later on tonight. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, Hamilton Public Board of education uh has voted unanimously right now to rename ryerson elementary school following uh what we've learned about the bc residential school discovery joining us to talk about this is a uh, cam galindo cam is of course is a trustee and also vice chair of the hamilton board of education uh cam welcome back to the program good to talk with you again today bill thanks so much for having me i appreciate it let's talk a little bit about uh, the motivation this was your motion of course to, to rename ryerson talk to us about uh, how you put this together and why well, you know, it brings us back to when the news first broke about the discovery of the 215 uh, bodies of, of children near the residential school at, at Kamloops, BC. Uh, so this would have been probably last weekend, Friday evening. And mm-hmm. like many people, I was devastated. It wasn't until Sunday evening that I, 
that I that it came to my attention that Egerton Ryerson um, was one of the architects of the residential school system, and that one of our schools at our board is in fact named after him. Um, it was at that time that um, you know I, I became aware of the privilege that I have as a trustee, and with privilege comes a responsibility to do something about the news uh, out of Canloops, and uh, that was really the inspiration for for uh, submitting the the notice of motion the following day. Uh, knowing that the deadline to submit was a week in advance, I worked with the area trustee, seeing as how Ryerson isn't one of my schools, but we worked with the area trustee and started uh, getting in touch with uh, several members of the community, several people who identified as uh, Indigenous, to get some of their feedback. Uh, because at the end of the day, the last thing I want to do is speak for Indigenous people. I, I don't speak for Indigenous people. I'm not Indigenous. Uh, my focus and priority has been uh, and will continue to be to elevate the voices of people who are often missing from decision-making tables, uh, and these voices often tend to be marginalized or underrepresented. Um, but the inspiration there uh, came from that, and also a lot of the work that's taking place in Toronto with the renaming of Ryerson University uh, and a lot of the uh, protests that have been taking place next to the statue on campus. I, I did take the time uh, earlier last week after submitting the, the motion to uh, head down to that statue and reflect um, and, and speak to some uh, members of the Indigenous community uh, who were taking part in the Indigenous drum circle uh, next to the statue late Monday night last week. Uh, and just to listen to some of the stories that have been passed down from generation to generation about the traumas that, that uh, many young people experience in the residential school system and they continue to experience even today. Um, so, so that's where we're at, uh, and, and I'm happy to say that the, the motion passed unanimously last night. Which is good news. Yeah, we've talked to a number of the survivors uh, over the last week and a half or so as well, and, and the, the, the stories are heart-wrenching, really. Which which begs the question, and, and I know that this is not directly into your bailiwick, but as a trustee, I'm sure you've got an opinion on this, as I'm sure your other board members do. Why aren't we teaching th that part of our Canadian history? And and you, as I'm sure people remember, I mean, for, from the first time you came on the show, uh, you came to this country at a very young age. Uh, you learned all about the history. You love this place, and the, this place loves you back uh, because of all the stuff that you've been doing for the community. Uh, but this this is a hole in our history, and and it's uh, maybe one of the reasons why there's been such pushback about the uh, the move. For instance, like uh, you and the board did yesterday about renaming a school after uh, Ryerson in situations like that, because Many Canadians, as you found out, and I've found out, Cam, don't even know that this existed and don't know this chapter in our history. No, and you've absolutely right. You've got it right in the head. And I asked myself that same question. I went to eight different schools before I ended up going to university, uh, most of which were in the Hamilton, Burlington area, half of which were Catholic schools. And residential schools was not discussed in any of my classes. Uh, indigenous history or the impact of colonization on indigenous people in Canada was barely touched upon. Uh, they barely even scratched the surface on that. And, and the question around why it's not being discussed more is something that I continue to ask myself. I think it probably speaks to the fact that, uh, again, people who are making decisions around curriculum-based programming are often coming from perspectives that tend to be more privileged and uh, to the common around not having... Uh, accurate representation at decision-making tables. I, I think that's probably a big factor as to why we haven't been talking about it. But the unfortunate thing about policymaking is that often it takes a significant event to drive uh, a lot of change in the community, to drive uh, a change in curriculum or in policy. And, and sadly, it, it took the discovery of 215 bodies to bring the attention of what took place in residential schools to the forefront 
for the first time in a really long time, or at least at this level in Canadian history. So my hope is that this is a turning point. My hope is that this is a watershed moment where we will uh, start to take a look at this more seriously. Um, the truth is, Indigenous communities have been expressing the intergenerational trauma of residential schools for a long time. And today, even if just for a little bit, we're listening, and I hope that we continue to listen uh, because as settlers on Turtle Island, there is a continuing obligation, both individually and collectively, to address reconciliation and our unmet responsibilities to Indigenous peoples. And uh, it's vital that we, we continue to do that. But well, absolutely, I think, and you're right. I mean, in this moment of time, yeah, we are listening, and that's great. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm upset about the fact and i hold everybody accountable including myself uh, that we weren't listening in the past because you're right this is not a new issue this is something that that many people in that community have been talking to us about and we simply took the explanation from those that were responsible for this well these were missionaries uh they were just educating aboriginal children and it, it was indoctrination we know that now i mean that's the word and if, if it makes people feel uncomfortable i'm sorry but it was basically saying we don't want you to uh, to follow your culture we don't want you to follow your language uh you're going to do it our way you're going to use our religion and you're going to and if you don't you're going to be punished severely for it i mean that's it's it's horrific to think that that was the mindset back in those days and and the Kamloops situation as you know cam that's that's the one that we know about i mean these schools were all over the country we don't know what else is going on uh you know we don't know what if there are more burial sites in other schools uh this is an ugly chapter but it's something that we have to come face to face with i think Absolutely. And I think the intent of the motion last night, again, was really to amplify the Indigenous voices that are often missing from those decision-making tables, or at least from the forefront of, you know, what's going on in our country with a lot of the flaws and a lot of the things that we're not doing right in the first place. Uh, so overall, I, I think it's a small action that could have a big impact. We definitely still have a long way to go. And if we're serious about truth and reconciliation, then we need to do more on Indigenous education so that all Indigenous students, staff, and people in our community feel that they belong and that their identities are valued, recognized, and affirmed in our schools, in our community. And you can't do that with a name like Ryerson above the front entrance. The other thing, too, is, Bill, Ryerson isn't the only name that yeah. has a negative impact and influence on our community. Uh, we've got multiple statues across the cities. We've got multiple buildings, parks, schools named after figures that represent colonial past or uh, oppressive um, backgrounds. And, and to be honest, we, we, we need to look at this more seriously. And that's the other part of the motion from last night, too, is, is to conduct a review of all our schools that are named after individuals to make sure that they uh, you know, fall within our vision, our mission and values at the board. Uh, but more importantly, as well, uh, through uh, the spirit of truth and reconciliation, uh, that they reflect the application of human rights, decolonization, anti-racism, and anti-oppression principles. So the idea here is to work alongside and in consultation with the Indigenous community uh, to hopefully be able to seek the actual truth and reconciliation that's so, that's, that, that, we've, that we're really trying to do. To your knowledge, are there any other boards that are following a, simple, a similar path? There's a board, I think, in Alberta that changed the name of a school last week. Uh, it wasn't Egerton Ryerson, but for a similar reason. And I think it was the Kamloops Residential School Discovery that um, pushed them to make the decision similar to ours. There are multiple schools in southern Ontario that are named after Egerton Ryerson. It's my understanding that we're the first so far, uh, and I'm hoping that we're not the last. Well, what uh, time frame do you have for staff to come back about this report about what other uh, school properties that may actually fall under the same character? Good question. I think 
first step is to rename Ryerson. This is going to be an entirely new process, and staff are going to need to operationalize that. Uh, the hope is that it will be Indigenous-led, uh, or at least uh, in cooperation with the Indigenous communities, so that we can come up with an Indigenous process that is unique and unlike anything we've done before. We have a policy for renaming schools that is currently undergoing a review because of concerns that we've raised in the past with how uh, we select the names for schools. Um, so for that same reason, we're going to be renaming Ryerson, uh, but we want to come up with a totally new process, and the hope is that uh, if this works out, that that new process that we developed for Ryerson can inform or at least inspire the new process that we're going to have in place, the new policy for renaming our schools. Uh, this is all going to happen in tandem with the review that will be taking place of all our schools uh, at our board, um, and I suspect it will come back to trustees uh, in the next school year. Cam, who's going to be around the table when that decision is made, for instance, about this school, the renaming of this school? I think it'll be this board. I, I think it'll be this board. I, I think we could have a decision done as early as December. Um, we don't have any official time frames that have been given by staff. That's my opinion and my hope. Uh, but for sure, uh, by the end of, of the next school year, uh, we can have a few decisions done because you're right, there's a municipal election next year. There could be some turnover at the board. Um, my hope is that we can get as much done uh, before uh, the disruption that typically comes with onboarding new trustees and the orientation that comes with that. But So, uh, so with that in mind, though, Kim, uh, let's talk about that consultation. If you'd like to get it done for the next school year, uh, is there enough time for you to have that consultation with uh, the Aboriginal groups and, and, and others who may want to have input into this and, and be, to get the wheels rolling on this? I think so, and, and I hope so too. I, you know, I, I tend to have the opinion of wanting to do things right the first time around. Uh, one of the challenges that we have with consulting uh, many uh, communities uh, that are often underrepresented or marginalized, including the Indigenous community, is that they have, we're often asking them to relive trauma that they've experienced uh, in the past. Uh, right now, the Indigenous community is undergoing a lot of, um, it, it needs some time to really process the news that's taking, that's taking uh, place in, in Canloops and that's come out of Canloops. Uh, the last thing that we, through a colonial lens, want to do is you know, hassle them with, with more, hey, we need input, we need input, we need input. Um, at the end of the day, it's something that I think we need to be mindful of and conscious of. And once everyone is ready to come to the table, I think that's when we'll be prepared to begin those consultations. Uh, but to your point, I'm not too sure what the time frame is, but as long as we are doing it correctly, respectfully, uh, as long as we are mindful uh, and looking at this from the perspective of an ethical engagement framework in consultation with local Indigenous communities and key beneficiaries and stakeholders. I, I think that would be the, the approach that we'll take, but that's something that staff will take away in operation line. Uh, with uh, Cam Galindo, who is the uh, vice chair of the Hamilton Board of Education. Uh, while I've got you, Cam, there's a, another motion that you guys dealt with at the, the last meeting, and it had to do with uh, the announcement, of course, that the premier made the other day that the schools were not going to be opening again until at least September, I think was the phrase that he used. Uh, you passed a motion, you and your board, uh, the other day, asking permission to at least open for a few days over the last few months of June. Uh, is, is that request going to go to the premier's office in the form of a letter? How's that going to be processed? So the request will be to the Ministry of Education. I suspect okay. the Premier's office will probably be CC. But essentially, it's to have our elementary schools back for the last week of school for interest in learning in order to facilitate more equitable access to social learning opportunities while maintaining uh, or rather minimizing risk-related activities um, with COVID-19. Um, you know, this comes uh, as the province made an announcement around uh, changing regulations for gatherings for graduation ceremonies without giving boards uh, or schools enough time to really uh, plan around the logistics with that. Um, so it's almost as if uh, the province is trying to shift blame and say, oh, no, see, 
we they should have been ready to host graduation ceremonies but we've we didn't know we, if we were going to be online or in person until just a couple of days ago. Uh, so it, it's, 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 it's been quite a school year, and it's been quite the end of the school year, but our hope is that we can uh, honor the students, honor the teachers, and honor the parents uh, this school year, particularly the ones that are graduating. Uh, but that letter will be sent to the minister's office, uh, and I suspect the premier will be carbon copied on that. I also suspect you'll probably get a response to it in October, too. But, I mean, that's... Uh, just my opinion, based on what I've heard from the government so far. Uh, with that in mind, though, and with the motion that, that you guys are, and the, the, the information and the request that you're sending there, Cam, uh, are we to assume that, that you've talked to teachers and, and student and parent groups about this to understand that everybody does feel secure about this? There's, there's mixed opinion in the community. We had a debate about it last night. Not everyone was on board, but we made a decision as a board. Uh, I think uh, at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to just make sure that we are uh, creating a more equitable uh, learning environment for students that often fall through the gaps, and that's our hope with the in-person learning for elementary students during the last week of school. Uh, public health has shared support for a return to in-person learning, and I expect mm -hmm. we would reinstate uh, our established protocols to keep students safe during that time period. Uh, but our main priority, again, is, is student learning, achievement, and honoring the experience that they've had in the last year, particularly the ones that are graduating this year. Well, and you remember the mantra from the Premier's office over the last 14 months that school should be the last ones to close and the first ones to open. Uh, they seem to have kind of lost that whole character, I guess, of that. But uh, hopefully uh, we'll see what kind of a response you get from the ministry on this. Uh, Cam, as always, thanks so much for the time today. And uh, uh, stay well. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thanks so much, Bill. Appreciate it. Cam Galindo, who is a trustee and, of course, the vice chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District Board of Education, uh, renaming Ryerson Elementary School and uh, requesting permission from the uh, Ministry of Education to open at least for the last week of school anyway, so uh, children and students and parents, for that matter, can have a, a proper graduation, even within the limits of uh, the new COVID restrictions. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.